Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. First of all, welcome to Oh My Lord. I'm here today with Lance. Welcome, Lance. Hi. Hi. Have you ever heard of Miggs Field? No. I didn't think so. But buckle up because you are in for a story. I'm going to tell you about what was one of the busiest single strip airports in the United States. Spoiler alert. This story involves quotes from three elected officials who later went to jail. Merrill C. Miggs Field opened on December 10th, 1948, on Northerly Island, a man-made peninsula in Lake Michigan, adjoined to the Chicago Loop. So, yes, this is an airport on a world-class waterfront next to the second largest business district in North America. Have you ever been to Chicago? Many times. This is really where the museum campus is, Soldier Field. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Miggs Field runs parallel to Soldier mm-hmm. Field. Gotcha. It's in the downtown area. For anyone who doesn't know, Chicago's lakefront is comprised of 26 miles of property with very little commercial development. And that's starting in the late 1800s when Aaron Montgomery Ward sued other elites preventing development from what is now Grant Park. The Burnham Plan of 1909 employed the beautiful cities concept And we have a commitment to keeping access to the water free and clear for all. So Burnham died in 1912 before his plan could be executed. It's worth noting that we still follow his plan to this day. And his motto was, make no small plans. However, I will do an entire episode on Burnham, that the city was slow to approve the plan. So businessman... Charles Wacker published Wacker's Manual to the Plan of Chicago to teach children attending Chicago public schools about urban planning. So in short, there was a time where a businessman in Chicago was distributing urban planning propaganda. Okay. Burnham envisioned Northerly Island as being occupied with trees and grass and enjoyed by the general population. So not an airport. Chicago's first airplane took off from Grant Park in 1910. If you're not familiar with Grant Park, it's considered to be Chicago's front yard. It's where you can find Buckingham Fountain, made famous by the opening of Married with Children, Jazz and Blues Fest, as well as Lollapalooza. However, in 1910, it served as an airport, including being the hub for Chicago's air mail service in 1918. However, not shockingly, the park proved inappropriate for the city's increasing aviation demand. So we have a park, and at one point in time, they were just flying planes out of it, which seems really weird to me. I tried to make any of this make sense, and it doesn't. (laughs) Was Harry Carey drinking in the bars at that time, or was that a little before his time? It was a little before Harry Carey's time. (laughs) A little. It was a park and it was 
designated by the earliest settlers to be free and clear for all, which was also upheld in Illinois Supreme Court. But sure, well, there might be some other aspects and we'll make this make a little more sense as we go into the story. In 1916, Edward G. Bennett, co-author of the 1909 plan, decided the lakefront would be a suitable site for an airport because, you know, why not? I guess in Gary, they were making factories on the waterfront, so an airport seems better. In 1920, Chicagoans authorized a bond referendum funding the approval to use landfill construction for the peninsula. So in 1920, Chicago was like, yeah, let's build this peninsula. Construction began in 1922. The same year, William Hale Thompson, Chicago's mayor at the time, who happens to be considered to be the most corrupt Illinois politician of all time. Wow, that's saying something. Are we sure? I have a friend who curated the list, and he's pretty up there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He deemed they, the peninsula. They had a governor that sold the Senate seat. I mean, that's pretty crazy, but okay. Uh, he's going to make an appearance in this story, Blago. He doesn't even make the mm-hmm. top 10 list. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't even make the top 10 list. Chicago and Illinois get some wild politicians. I tell people, because I've been researching this, we have what they're called aldermen, they're city council people. Sure. And when we discuss them and we discuss which one's been indicted, we have mm-hmm. to check in to make sure we're talking about the same one. <laughs> yeah. And it's worth mentioning that Thomas was never jailed, but. He was the last Republican mayor Chicago ever had, lest you worry about how solidly blue we are. Wow. So he decided... What? (laughs) The opposite down here where I live. Yeah. (laughs) You guys are purple down there. Like the suburbs where I live, but everywhere else is solidly red. You're in Atlanta, right? Yeah. I've been following the cop city thing. Yeah, sure. Actually... Reading Cop City and an airport are very different things, but I can see parallels to how it's happening. Sure. I want to underscore that this is a man-made peninsula. This is parallel to what's called Museum Campus, which is where you can find the Shedd Aquarium, the Field Museum, and Soldier Field. And not too far from Navy Pier, which is one of the largest tourist destinations in the state of Illinois. This is happening in the 20s, but then the Great Depression happens. And it delayed many projects, including the airport. However, the peninsula construction continued. They're building, but they've halted the airport. And in fact, Northerly Island was home to the 1933 World Fair, which appropriately focused on aviation. Also, I was doing a little investigating into the fair. They had what was called Midget City. Okay. Which literally displayed midgets. I really thought you were going to go someplace else. The literal definition. Okay, I'm down now. Yeah, literal definition was midget city. And the book was like, obviously, people would consider this to be exploitative now. But yeah, no. 1933, let's just have the midget city. (laughs) Okay. Also parallel to, this is a weird transition. Around that same time, the state approved the airport. So late 
mid-1930s state approves the airport. Then World War II happened. But the airport did open in 1948, and luckily rich people with private planes had an airport finally open in the downtown area. Okay. I'm not going to get into the details or specs of MIGS Field. People can Google them. Suffice it to say, when JFK came here on Air Force One, he arrived at MIGS Field because it was minutes from the business district. But none of that is the fun part of the story. We're going to fast forward to 1994 when Mayor Richard M. Daley, the second of the Daley mayors, for anybody who doesn't know, announced he was turning MIGS Field into a park. Oh, I forgot to mention, this land, this peninsula, has been controlled by the Park District since the get-go. All right, I'm in. (laughs) This part is key. So after the lease expired in 1996, Daly closed Miggs Field from October 1996 until February 1997. But the state legislature pressured him to reopen. This is where we're going to get political. Now, this is also where I'm going to talk about three governors, two of whom went to jail. When people talk about, oh, someone's like, I I, I lived in California for a little bit, and someone was like, yeah, this mayor got indicted. And I'm like, you got to bring more. My outrage about corrupt politicians. (laughs) Yeah, I just looked at Bog. In the middle of this, and you're right. He, he, I don't, I guess he didn't make the top 10. He probably had some people that killed some people. This is pretty crazy. Mm. There were people that worked with Al Capone on that list. Yeah, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We just had the St. Valentine's Day massacre. How many people were involved in that? I, that's on my list for things in the future. I avoid when I'm looking at history, and I know I'm going to have to, I avoid the Al Capone and the mafia of it all. Just because there are so many other people working on it. But yeah. So I'm going to quote from a 1996 Washington Post article entitled Governor Mayor Clash Over Airfield. And this is what the Washington Post says. Edgar, however, is determined to reopen the airport, even if that requires state takeover of land. On Tuesday, under Edgar's prodding, the Republican-controlled Illinois House voted to authorize a state takeover of the property, which for the last 50 years has been the site of a convenient general aviation facility for corporate and other private aircraft, only a few minutes from the city's central business district. The state Senate, also controlled by the GOP, did the same on Wednesday night. So. What we have here is Daly wants to make it into a park. And the state is going to take over land owned by the city of Chicago. That sounds sketchy to me. (laughs) And I actually lived in Chicago while this was happening, but I was mostly just being a 20-something college kid. However, this story was unavoidable. And what I remember from it was, the governor's wife really liked flying into Miggs Field. The article goes on to say, and I'm including this for people who are up on their current events of Chicago's history in the making, mm-hmm. referring to both Daly and Edgar. Their differences have included whether casino gambling should be authorized in Chicago 
as Daly sought and Edgar opposed. How to respond to the Chicago Bears' demand for a new stadium and the location of a proposed third regional airport. We are still talking about a casino. There's been a location picked, and now people are fighting over that. The Bears bought a racetrack in Arlington Heights and want to move to the suburbs, and there is an issue of who pays for what. And we still don't have a third regional airport. Mm -hmm. I like to say Chicago has been Chicagoing since we started Chicago. We're going to need a timeline of governors. In 1997, Edgar announced he was retiring. In 1998, now ex-con George Ryan won. After serving two terms, he opted not to run again because of mounting scandals. Enter Blagojevich, the governor who tried to sell Obama's Senate seat and shake down a children's hospital. Yeah, I forgot about that. This is also an important context of how this story plays out in the next level. Because this involves a lot of criminals, maybe, maybe Edgar committed to Miggs Field, promised the state that they would take over land owned by the Park District. And Mayor Daly concedes. Is that clear? Yeah, I'm down. Okay, maybe a bully, Edgar, retires, and Daly wants an expansion at O'Hare. In 2001, he reached a deal with, I kept the receipts, Ryan, and agreed to keep Miggs Field open until 2006. In exchange... For Ryan's support of a $6.6 billion expansion at O'Hare. All right. And I don't really know what I commuted death row sentences Ryan got out of the deal. (laughs) That is one thing I will give to Ryan. One of his last things he did as governor was commute all of the death row sentences in Illinois. Gotcha. Didn't save his reputation, which is a good thing to note. Daly, meanwhile, is trying to get this whole thing involved with O'Hare into federal legislation. So there's now a federal component. However, none of this matters because on March 30th, 2003, while most of the city was asleep, Richie II ordered bulldozers and rendered the airstrip unusable by gouging large axes into the runway. He just bulldozed the airstrip. I bet the guy driving the bulldozer is having the time of his life. <laughs> I'm sure they are. They're just driving the bulldozer going, these guys are crazy. Like, it's this extra like, 13 bucks an hour I made doing this is fantastic. <clears throat> it, there were planes left on the airstrip and Daly offered to tow them out if they couldn't take off at the city's expense. There were people who were driving to work at Miggs Field and found out they were fired because of the bulldozing. The guys on the bulldozer are just drinking, just drinking a Schlitz beer and waving at people as he's doing it. He's having the time of his life. That extra few hundred bucks in his pocket is just making him happy. It's insane. And to prevent it from being recorded, they had a fire truck blast a light at the cameras on the museum campus. 
it was a well thought out taking down of an airstrip. Why did you become a fireman? I thought I wanted to save people, but man, this spotlighting, this thing, this is fantastic. You should see me kill, go deer hunting with this thing. This thing's fantastic. These are all union jobs. I'm not dissing union, but these are all jobs. Of course they are. This is why you need unions. 40-hour week, vacation, insurance, and you get to spotlight to prevent people from recording you while you're doing things illegal. That's the reason why you need a union job. From the Chicago Tribune on April 1st, 2003, titled, Daily Rips Up Migsfield Runway in Surprise Raid. This is what the article says. The lengthy list of those unaware of the plan to move under cover of darkness late Sunday included Chicago's 50 aldermen, Governor Rod Blagojevich, Federal Aviation Administration, and the Department of Homeland Security officials, and virtually everyone else in the Chicago area. When the Cubs are terrible and the Bears can't win, all you got to do is follow the politics. Now I see why they were okay with the Cubs not winning for 108 years. They were having too much fun following this stuff. Oh, I tell people I had a job where I had to read the local news. And there was a nice period of time in 2004 where there were two parallel like, soap operas happening in the news. One of them was Obama was running for senator and his opponent was a guy named Ryan. And he had a sealed divorce record he was married to the actress jerry ryan no jerry ryan yeah yeah jerry ryan yeah i remember and they had a sealed divorce decree and the tribune was like a dog on a bone to get that unsealed and you found out that he was forcing his wife to go to swinging clubs yep i remember and also they were stalking obama yeah and then ryan had a withdrawal from the race and they were going to have Ditka run against Obama. <laughs> and then I think they settled on Alan West. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So that was happening. In the same time, Donald Trump was building Trump Tower. And Mayor Daley decided he was really sick of flat-roofed buildings. So he wasn't approving any buildings that didn't have spires. Okay. And the Trump organization was really upset that Mayor Daley was telling them what to do. <laughs> These two unfolding dramas. So if the sports suck, you just look at the politics. Absolutely. I'm sure. That's just the reason why nobody cared that the Cubs didn't win. I got it. Yeah. Hmm. We have a, an alderman who we call the Viagra alderman because he was literally bribing people in exchange for Viagra. Back to this story, though. To be clear... He did not violate any laws. Now, even though you don't know about this story, it did get covered in the Smithsonian in an article titled The Day the Mayor Shut Down Migsfield. And this is what they said. Daly first shut the field down in 1996 with the intention of turning the airport into parkland in order to boost Chicago's slumping real estate values and shore up political support by closing a symbol of elite privilege. Though that move was sudden, X's marking the runway as off-limits 
were only painted on. And soon after, the state of Illinois legislated the airport back into operation. MIG's future seemed assured by late 2001, when, to close the deal to expand nearby O'Hare International, Chicago's primary international airport, and one of the busiest in the world, Daly was forced to agree to operate MIGs until 2026. When the O'Hare deal stalled, Daly closed MIGs once and for all, incurring a $33,000 fine for ignoring the 30-day advance warning required. The advance of O'Hare was eventually approved separately. Now, we have the former governor's wife like to fly into the airport. It was always supposed to be a park, but we take a turn. At the time when he destroyed Miggs Field, he claimed he did it to protect the city from terrorism, which is interesting for a couple of reasons, but I'm going I'm to quote the Tribune. This is some good, the Tribune and this is some good journalism on behalf of just taking a dig at Mayor Daley. Still stewing because federal authorities were quicker to restrict airspace over Mickey and Minnie at Disney World and Disneyland than they were for Chicago. Mayor Daley said his unilateral closure of MIGs was prompted in part by fears that the nation's homeland security bureaucracy was moving too slowly to address the city's needs. I'm going to just tell you a couple things. I remember Daly's press conferences after 9-11, and I'm not going to get into them, but there's some pure gold. This is how Daly does a press conference. And this is actually how all Chicago mayors do a press conference, is they hold a press conference, and they get asked really benign questions, like, why did you close Miggs Field? And they respond by sounding completely, it's a weird mixture of annoyance and agitation that they have to answer the question. And they respond with something that's completely, totally obvious. Another thing that is important to note is in Chicago, we have our elections in February. This happened on March 30th. About a month earlier, Daly had won by 79%. Wow. <clears throat> he felt like he had a mandate from the people that he could do no wrong. Sure. And in many ways, he did have a mandate because we elected him for almost close to a decade more after that. Sure. People also might be afraid he's going to send bulldozers over to their houses. That could be true. Yeah. A lot of people, it's interesting because... He was a very effective mayor, and when I look back at it, how comfortable we were with what's blatantly authoritarian of, like, bulldozing an Air Force Absolutely. or airport. Yeah. Sure. And we're just like, oh, yeah, that's just Chicago politics. That's completely normal. I have a few quotes from the initial Tribune reporting. Do you remember Dennis Hassert? Yeah, of course. Former Speaker of the House, corrupt politician, serial child abuser. Yeah, yeah there we go. That's, yeah, that's the lead. 
That's, we got to get Dennis Hassard's response here. The Tribune reached out to him, and I quote, House Speaker Dennis Hassard, Republican Illinois, another MIGS backer, does not plan to intervene to reverse Daly's actions, said Mike Stocky, an aide. But Stocky said Hassard was, quote, not aware of any national security concern that would require them to do this. Not only the unilateral action, but the comment that we're no longer bound by anything in the deal is a little troubling. Okay. So that was Hassard's response. Daly said, this is a direct quote, and not just our tallest buildings, but the hundreds of thousands of people who will soon be attending downtown events like Taste of Chicago and the Grant Park concerts, our museum park, Navy Pier, our water filtration plant, who will be using our beaches and visiting our museums. That was Daly's response. And then we get into Blagojevich's response. This is a landing strip smack dab in the middle of downtown Chicago, said gubernatorial spokesperson Cheryl Jackson. The governor thinks closing Miggs Field is a good idea. Those are the political responses. Now, okay. Northerly Island is a park, complete with prairie grass, strolling trails, a pond, even a small beach. In 2005, they completed the Huntington Bank Pavilion, a venue built and run by Live Nation. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> so you can see the Foo Fighters and then, okay, I'm down. All right. There, there's a, it's actually kind of cool because you can get on a boat and listen to a concert from a boat. But the fact that it's ran by Live Nation is just, you got Ryan, you got Blagojevich, you've got Hassert, and then you just have satanic entity Live Nation. I'm going to acknowledge that this narration is simplistic, but that is a choice. I focus on the quirkier aspects of the story. Like Mayor Daly, Miggs Field, now known as an event more than an airport, is complicated. For many, like my mom, his legacy as mayor lies in that deed. For others, chalk it up to another day in Chicago, much like an alderman being arrested by the Fed. I just want to say that, well imperfect, one thing I will say about Mayor Daly is he loved the city. He saw the possibility of the city and transformed a lot of shit. We would not have the theater district without Mayor Daley. We would not have the river walk without Mayor Daley. And a lot of disasters that happen. I have is I wish I ran a construction company in the late 1990s. My guys would absolutely love me. That would be the second thought. I'm ahead. It's actually funny. It's not funny, but during 2020, when they were afraid that there would be mass civil unrest and they wanted to block people from the city, for a while, they were opening all the bridges. We have 38 bascule training bridges, and they would just open the drawbridges, which was a problem if you needed to get somewhere else in the city. So what they did for a long time is they just had a bunch of bulldozers and like all the trucks the city had 
Sure. Ready to just block off access to streets. I used to, so I used to work for Motorola, worked for them for a long time. And obviously their headquarters or it used to be in Schaumburg. Now it's just in downtown Chicago. And it used to be if you wanted to get any work done around the city whatsoever, there were about five different hoops that you had to jump through as far as permitting goes. And you had to be prepared to spend about 25 grand for a permit for anything that was a decent product. It was a huge amount of money. Oh, yeah. A friend who worked, he actually worked in construction in about this time, about the early 2000s. And he was explaining to me permitting and how laborious it is just to get a permit. And a lot of work gets done before the permits actually issued. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> So we built tower sites for Motorola and I was up there in 05 working up there in the snow and we probably did about, I would say maybe 30, 40% of the project with it being unpermitted. And then when we finally got it, I think it cost us like 27 grand to get permitted. It was a lot of money. I've been reading lately about a lot of projects that are getting approved and Given you work in construction, I don't work in construction, but I am an architectural tour guide. So I keep up on what's happening in real estate and construction. And I don't think these projects are ever going to happen because the cost of building things is so expensive and there's always a shortage here. The city's just taking people's money. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. And I, it came to my attention because... I was looking at, there was a barge outside of Trump Tower, and we were trying to figure out, I work at the base of Trump Tower. Oh, really? And, yeah. Yes. It was really fun trying to get to work in 2020 during the election. There were just streets, like, you're just walking down a street, and all of a sudden you're, like, in, like, an unauthorized zone. I remember just looking at a cop and just being like, I'm sorry, I don't know what to do. And he just looked at me and like, nobody does. Yeah. <laughs> But it was an interesting time. But yeah, there was a, we make up things about Trump Tower all the time because the lower level, there's three levels that aren't finished. The lower level isn't finished. Just raw construction. It was raw construction and there were like random chairs and we're like, are they torturing people in the ba basement of Trump Tower? Yeah. We made up for a while that it's like the QAnon headquarters are down there. <laughs> and then according to one of the security guards at Trump Tower. It's where R. Kelly lived. Oh, really? Because, <laughs> of course. And when he got, I guess, he, he got foreclosed on, and his furniture was just in the basement of this undeveloped space in Trump Tower. Wow. Yeah, not surprisingly, Trump Tower uses river water for their cooling system okay which is a really cool highly regulated by the epa system that about 12 buildings on the river use and you're supposed to check the temperature and all this stuff and i don't think it will shock you to find out that trump tower did none of that no of course not <laughs> so we think we've we made up finally that this construction was actually getting up to code so that they could get in front of it and not get fined. I was trying to like for a construction permit. So go, I even went over there to see if I could read the permit. 
and there was nothing. <laughs> like there was nothing. Yeah, we joked that there there was no paperwork whatsoever. There was just an envelope with money in it. That's all the that, that was the permit. Yeah, it's so you've dealt with. Because I worked in a job where we dealt with the city a lot because we got tax incremental financing. And it was just like dealing with the city was its own world. <laughs> I remember specifically, I worked for a theater company and George Went was in town and 12 okay. Angry Men. It was right after the cigarette smoking ban took place. And George Went claimed that he had talked to Mayor Daly and that the smoking ban didn't apply to theater. So my boss calls me and he's like, can you call whoever you know at Mayor Daly's office? He's like, I've read the ordinance. He's like, I've read it three times. It does not exclude theaters from the smoking ban. So I called my connection at City Hall and she's like, I doubt George went talk to the mayor directly. She's like, but I'll get to the bottom of this. She calls me back about five minutes later. She's like, yeah, George went did talk to the mayor directly and they can smoke during 12 Angry Men. I call my boss back and I'm like, yeah, it's fine. He's like, but I've read the ordinance. And I'm like, the ordinance is just a piece of paper, dude. Here, let's light it on fire with our cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So is that your story? That's my story. The story of Miggs Field. <laughs> the time the mayor just demolished an airstrip. All I'm going to think about the rest of the day is just dudes riding around on, on bulldozers, chopping things up. It's going to make my day. Yeah, just bulldozing, just being like, got this super secret mission. Got to get on my bulldozer and maybe violate federal law. I appreciate the invite. Thank you very much. Where can people find you on the interwebs? I have turned into a 90-year-old man. I am only on Facebook. So Lance Burson on Facebook, more than welcome to friend request me. But as far as everything else, I have turned into a 90-year-old man. I am no longer on anything else. I know that disappoints you. I find that fascinating because you used to just be Twitter and no book of face. Yeah. I used to have all the things. I used to have a huge blog that got, got to be a big deal. And it's a combination of... I, I, this you're going to sound sound funny when I say this, but I just decided I didn't want to have the same addiction as President Orange Face, and I got completely off of everything for about a year, and then I got back on Facebook after about a year, and I just for the kids' pictures and that kind of thing. It's one of those kind of things. Like I used to think people who didn't have social media, what's wrong with you? And now all of a sudden, when I meet somebody and they say, "Hey, I'm not on social media. I want to be their best friend." You know what I mean? I do actually understand that i know you remember when i uh went viral on twitter and not sure. a good way <laughs> i stayed off of twitter for years i would get on twitter just to at some corporation so i could get some customer services resolved i used mm -hmm. it as an instrument of shame and then when the alex jones trials started i was so addicted to those that mm -hmm. if i had to go to work i had accounts that were live tweeting the trials so I could stay up to date on them. And sure. then that ended. And then Elon took over. I'm a little addicted to Twitter because it's a goddamn train wreck. <laughs> From doing stand-up for so many years and blogging for so many years and writing for websites for so many years, I had so much stuff stolen in terms of jokes and 
articles and the things I'd written and all that other kind of stuff. And it was one, that was the other thing as well. I got a lot of uh, stand-up comedy buddies who get jokes stolen all of the time just from putting stuff on Twitter. And I was just like, if you just go to the clubs, nobody can steal from you from there unless they do it right in front of your face. That does make sense. And yeah. what, just out of curiosity, whatever happened to your blog? I just, so what happened was I left Motorola after 13 years in 2017. So I hadn't, the last time I had to look for a job, no social media existed. And so I decided to take everything down because I was looking for a new day job at the, that particular time. And I was going to start something back up. And then kids got older and my wife got sick for a little while. And it was one of those kind of things of, oh, I'm going to actually be a good dad and a good husband and just yep. stand up. Yeah. My kids would like to tell you stories of what their childhood was at one time and what it became when they were teenagers. You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember... I met you was through the writing prompts and the blogosphere days and it all of a sudden it seems like it just disappeared overnight like the writing prompts and the whole sharing your blog like it just disappeared yeah that's pretty much what happened plus I got heavy into stand-up and it was just taking a lot of time away from that as well people don't understand if you're gonna write you've got to write it's not one of those things where you can do it once a week or every once in a while you really you have to do it every single day I wrote two books for two things that were published in other books and then wrote two books by myself and you had to write every single day. And if you, it just takes time. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. If you've got a day job like I had, then it takes even more time. So it's, it's pretty weird to actually spend as much time that I do now with my wife and kids that, compared to what I used to. And it gives me more time to do stand-up. Yeah, I can see that. I remember when I was blogging and I had a writing coach and the rule was I had to write for two hours every day at the exact same time. Sure. And I don't have the luxury of having that kind of discipline anymore. Yeah. It, it, it disciplines the right word. You have to be really disciplined about it. And then what it does is it takes away your discipline from everything else. You know what I mean? <laughs> I miss writing. I don't miss blogging. I know that may sound two mutually exclusive things, but it actually is. Miss writing. I don't miss blogging. Yeah, I haven't written for a long time. I didn't write for a long time. Now I'm writing podcast scripts, which is fun. And I'm getting back into my groove. Yeah, I wrote. And I think for me, what it was that Twitter incident made me a little skittish from sharing my work. Sure. It's tough to put yourself out there. And same with being a stand-up comedian. I, so, get, I still get messages from you. From stuff that I wrote years ago from people who send it to me and say, hey, I found this. Somebody stole it and passing it off as their own. And I'm like, that's fine. I haven't used that joke in five years. They're more than welcome to it. You know what I mean? I had no idea that happened. Like, Oh, yeah. There's a handful of us that it happens to. But yeah, it. <clears throat> not that I'm the world's greatest joke teller or the world's greatest writer or anything. But when you put a lot of stuff out there and people don't have as much talent or as much time to come up with their own thing, then they'll just pick things up off the internet. Yeah, actually, so there is a, a really bad joke we tell on our architectural river tours. And it's all the jokes we tell are bad, but that's what people come for. We found out that one of the, somebody was working with us briefly was using the joke in stand-up, like in the clubs. Really? Yes. So let me tell you a quick story before I go. You'll like right. this. So I got this buddy of mine who does stand up. His name's AK Board. 
And he's a terrific guy. You'd love him. He, and he's just, he's funny and smart and smart funny. And he had a joke where the punchline was, so at the end of the, so at the end of the joke, you say, new phone, who dis? You've heard that. Yeah. So he had a joke that was completely different from mine. His joke was a minute or two minutes long. And then at the end of the thing, he had new phone, who dis? So I had one that had to do with my wife flirting with me over the phone with emojis and things along those lines. His joke had something to do with like calling customer service or something. But the punchline was new phone, new disc. So somebody comes up to me at a club and says, I think AK has got the same joke you do. And it terrified me because he and I are friends with each other. I left club that night, called him on the, in the car on the way home. And I said, can you do your joke for me? <laughs> He's at home. He wasn't even out doing stand-up. He was at home with his wife. And he said, sure. So he does his joke. And I said, okay, here's my joke. And he goes, those are not the same jokes. They just had that one line at the end of the thing. I said, yeah, I'm going to stop doing mine. He said, Lance, it's not the same joke. You just have the one little tag at the end. I said, I'm going to stop. It's your joke. You do. You use that line. And I said, if you hear anybody else, make sure you tell them that you, Lance, it's okay. You can use your joke. I haven't told the joke in, and this is probably three years ago. Haven't mentioned, I don't even say it to my family anymore. Like I'm that kind of person who I would rather not even do stand up anymore than steal a joke or have a joke that has the same line in it or anything like that at all. And, and that's how hardcore I am. But there are other people out there who just steal each other's jokes and they don't even care. That's deplorable to me. That is just, you shouldn't be a comedian or it'd be like if I just plagiarized. Absolutely. And, and I guess it's because when I was doing theater reviews, I was painstakingly trying to avoid even the whimper of plagiarism. Sure. Or the whimper of writing, like particularly theater reviews. It's really hard to get creative saying the same thing about costume sets and acting every week. <laughs> See, what you're saying, though, at least that's observational, right? 95% of the stuff that I say on stage is all personal. Like, I talk about my life. I don't, I don't talk about airplane food. I don't talk about men and women are different. I don't. All of my stuff is personal. It's impossible for me to copy other people's stuff unless I completely lie about my life. I don't lie about my life. But if you take somebody else's personal life and then use it as your own, which happens to me all the time, I say all the time. It's happened to me many, several times. You're, dude, you understand that people who know me, you're going to know what you're doing. I'm talking about my kids and you're turning that into your own joke. You know what I mean? So that's the crazy part is I don't even, I don't even do observational humor. I do stuff about my personal life and my own thoughts and feelings. I don't even, I don't even do observational humor, which is well, the crazy part. Well, I remember a blog you wrote, <laughs> must have been 10 years ago about Christmas and being a blended family. It was what I say that it was your personal life and it was profoundly authentic, mm -hmm. which is why I remember it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I want to acknowledge your writing stuck with, I'm sure your humor sticks with people, but stealing work is not a form of flattery in this case. <laughs> the other thing is when you don't make a lot of money, if you make a million dollars doing stand up, then you don't really care if somebody steals one of your jokes because they're probably not making the same amount of money as you. But when you're doing it as a second job and barely making any money at it, good money at it, like I do, then it's your Jesus.
I hope that person's making a million bucks with it because I'm not. Well, <laughs> and the thing about if they turned around and made a million bucks with it, how pissed you would be. <laughs> you know what? I probably would just go, congratulations. I don't know what to tell you. Cool to make a million bucks with it. But yeah. I, I mean, I appreciate you inviting me on today. Thank you very much. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.